When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, Psychoactive listeners. So in a few days, you'll be hearing my interview on Psychoactive with Garth Mullins. He's a drug user activist, an award-winning radio documentarian, and host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast, where drug users cover the drug war as war correspondents. So in advance of that, I thought I'd give you a taste of an episode of Garth's podcast, specifically episode 30, where he talks about a drug giveaway organized by one of the drug user organizations in Vancouver, which was trying to challenge the government to step up more quickly to respond to the overdose epidemic in that city. Yeah. 
<laughs> as long as it's a good rip. I'm Garth Mullins. This is Cracktown. Episode 30, Drug User Liberation Front. On the last episode of Crackdown, we told you the story of one day, Wednesday, February the 9th, 2022. That was the day British Columbia's chief coroner announced the illicit drug toxicity death statistics for last year. 2021 was the sixth year of the public health emergency, and it is with tremendous sadness that I report that our province is in a worse place than it has ever been in this drug toxicity crisis. In 2021, we lost 2,224 people to illicit drug toxicity. 2,224 dead in 2021. A new, grim record. The government dodged our request to do an interview about the statistics, and they held a press conference where they mostly bragged about all the good work they're doing and how they're trying so hard. Never have so many people worked so hard and stood up so many supports. Ministers Dix and Malcolmson still have not granted crackdown an interview. Drug user organizations like the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, the BC Association of People on Opioid Maintenance, and the Drug User Liberation Front called on these ministers to step down, to resign. Instead, they're giving themselves a pay raise. Millions upon millions of dollars are dumped down the drain each year when the solution is right in front of their eyes. On the same day, we held our own event. A sort of memorial where we remembered our friends who died the previous year and gave out a safe supply of tested drugs. It was meant to show the world what a post-drug war future could look like. We're going to distribute some drugs. These drugs have been tested by mass spectrometry, by amino acid gift sticks, by FTIR testing. To the best of our ability, we are doing what the government should be doing. And we hope you enjoy the drugs. <laughs> but we didn't tell you how we pulled this off. Where did the drugs come from? Who gave them away? And where did we get the idea to do this in the first place? I look like a criminal, but Jeremy looks like he could be, you know, an average. Okay, I'm, I'm, uh, I got really limited eyesight, and radio has no eyesight, so you're gonna have to describe each other. Okay, you, Eris, you describe Jeremy. Jeremy looks like a well-to-do kind of nice person. Like Patagonia jacket, blue jeans, like yellow Tims, but just like nicely cut hair, you know, relatively good. You look like a scientist mixed with like a field researcher geologist. <laughs> now you do me. Yeah, now do it. All right. Well, you know, Eris looks like, uh, you know, a punk who got punched in the head of like a couple too many times. <laughs> Right. If it was just me doing this without Jeremy, I feel like we'd have a lot less public traction. You know, it's good to have a figurehead that looks like respectable enough that people trust them. This is Eris Nix and Jeremy Kellicum, organizers with the drug user activist organization DULF. That stands for Drug User Liberation Front. I'm also part of the group. 
Dolph's philosophy is simple. Don't wait around for the government to do something. Do it yourself, even if that means breaking the law. Eris and Jeremy tell me that they came to this kind of radical thinking through very different ways. You know, essentially, I, I come from low-income, delinquent roots. And, you know, I really wanted to, you know, build something of myself and become a successful person. So I had, you know, my you know, plan all, all mapped out. Now I, I wanted to go into to med school. Um, so I was going through my undergrad and some doctor came to our school to talk about, you know, how to get into med school. And I'm like, oh, what, what can I do to set myself apart from the pack? They're like, oh, why don't you open it like a needle exchange, like do something cool. I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Um, and that was right when, when people were pushing for overdose prevention sites. And uh, there was a city councillor who was very vocal about it. And I messaged him. I'm like, hey, like, why don't we just set up an overdose prevention site? Like, it seems like people are doing that. Um, and, you know, it seems like something that we could we can make happen. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. And a week later, we, we set up an overdose prevention site in the parking lot of City Hall in Nanaimo. So were you a drug user at the time of this? No, I'm a complete square. I never even tried or really seen many drugs. It was just something that, you know, I felt like we should do. I thought it'd be a good kind of, you know, resume builder or whatever. I'm like, cool, like this will help me stand out. And then it just kind of, you know, like really, I realized I couldn't step away. Like this wasn't a kind of one and done sort of thing. I mean, I started working in the shelter system when I was like quite young, like 19. And I guess like at the time I was a bike mechanic and I was making like 10, 25 an hour. And uh, Rain City was hiring for their like winter heats and it was like $23 an hour. And I was like, oh yeah, like these are the homies. I'll just go do that. Uh, so, you know, it was like the increase in wages, but uh, the longer I did it and I like doing that, I like hanging out in a shelter and like helping people out and being like, yo, you need food. You need me to bridge you to this other shit. You need housing. Like, you know, that's what I like doing. But what drew me into public policy was the fact that everyone was dying. I remember in 2016 rolls around, it's like everyone's dead. There's like eight, 10 overdoses a shift. Like it's crazy town. <laughs> I remember the time Eris is talking about in 2016. There was a huge spike of deaths and the media started to take notice. They started telling a story that drug users had known for some time. Fentanyl was taking over the drug supply and causing people to fatally overdose at an alarming rate. We've had six overdoses since 6 a.m. this morning. When Narcan works, that is a good call. Sometimes it doesn't in a province where a state of emergency has been declared because two people are dying every day. In April of that year, the provincial government declared a public health emergency. But the declaration didn't come with any kind of bold action. No decriminalization, no safe supply. Instead, we got an anti-stigma ad campaign and enough crocodile tears to fill a swimming pool. Sister. Daughter. Friend. People who use drugs are real people. Learn more at stopoverdosebc.ca. A message from the government of British Columbia. The government also put a special emphasis on addiction treatment as one of the main ways to fight the crisis. There's still long wait lists for most inpatient programs here. But the government frequently announces new beds. This always struck me as a pretty dubious and long-term solution to an immediate crisis. Treatment doesn't work for most people. And when it does work, it can take years. There's also no evidence to show that these kind of programs actually lower the risk of overdose death. And in many cases, 
they increase the risk of overdose. All this stuff from the government also seemed to ignore the weekend warriors and first-timers. What good is an anti-stigma campaign for a kid who's trying Oxy for the first time? What good is addiction treatment for someone who uses coke at a party every few months? We're in a mass death crisis, and we need solutions that are going to save your life this afternoon. So, we started to do it ourselves. Drug user activists, including several members of Crackdown's editorial board, patrolled the downtown east side with Narcan. We checked to see if people who had been slumped over were still breathing. We became experts at bringing people back from the dead. In September, activists Ann Livingston and Sarah Blythe opened an unsanctioned overdose prevention tent in a back alley. It was an act of bravery and defiance, and it wasn't legal. Thinking back to the beginning of the crisis feels very strange now, like a different planet. It was a horrible time, but it was also a time of some real political action. The sheer scale of death showcased the humanity of our community and the lengths we'd go to to help our most alienated and vulnerable friends. Our lives were thrust into the public eye like never before. What the hell is the news crew doing here? Fentanyl dealers are busy and first responders are in high demand. Do you want to go to the hospital and get checked out? This is the new young face of fentanyl addiction. The uh, latest person to die is a 17-year-old uh, high school student. A young couple, uh, a husband and wife, they died. They had mixed fentanyl with other a drugs. A 31-year-old uh, man died in North Vancouver on Friday. I remember the day the fentanyl came out and my dealer said, you know, I've got these new pills, they're fake oxys. He didn't tell me they were fentanyl because nobody knew what fentanyl was yet. Everybody that we touch and everybody that we deal with has a story. If I can get off, I would, but most of the detoxes are full, all the shelters are full, it's hard. Every time I do dope, I know I'm taking a risk. I know that I, I might die, but... At that point, you're not really thinking about that because you're so dope sick, you just want to feel better, right? It doesn't matter how many times I've OD'd, I still use the next day because the withdrawals are so bad. They could never really see us when we were alive. But in death, so many deaths, finally, we were noticed. Maybe it was the overdoses of white middle-class kids that pushed us into the public eye. Maybe it was the sheer scale. So many deaths. But it seemed like they finally saw us. But then what happened? Those illegal OPS tents were given a little money and were sanctioned. There were a few half measures. But eventually, things just kind of settled into this awful malaise. The national press moved on to cover other crises. The government stopped talking and thinking about us nearly as much. And though the deaths continued, the sense of urgency evaporated. 2019 was the year they were like, oh, everything's gotten better. The interventions we have are working, na-na-na, OPS sites, overdose prevention sites, naloxone, this is successful. 2020 rolls around and everybody starts fucking dying even worse than before. Sorry, I should try not to swear. No, I know. Go ahead. It's crap down. As many F-bombs as you want. Well, at any rate, uh, so 2020, 2020 comes around and everyone starts dying a lot. And I think that, you know, really motivated people to be like, this is far from over. We need to do something direct. When COVID-19 hit, borders closed and drug prices jumped. Suddenly, there was way more benzos in the dope. People were passing out for hours and hours. The drug supply was more dangerous than ever. 
it was so hard for you know drug user groups when when COVID started because it was it was never really a, a COVID emergency for us. Like as soon as it started, we we knew exactly what's going to happen. We're like they're going to shut down all the services. People who are experiencing homelessness are going to be left out starving with their feet soaked, and you know people they're going to close overdose prevention sites or really restrict them, and like lots of people are going to die. Around that time, I started to get calls from government officials. They were asking me what to do if I was in their position. How could I keep people from dying? It was pretty clear they knew we were about to break records. The thing I kept telling them was, safe supply. We need a fucking safe supply of drugs. Don't try to convince us not to use drugs. Don't wait until we're on the edge of death before doing something to help. Give us a regulated pharmaceutical version of fentanyl, heroin, crack, cocaine, meth, whatever. Allow us to know what's in our drugs. The government eventually did put out something they called safe supply, but it didn't include the drugs that people actually used on the street, and it required doctors to prescribe them to us. And, for reasons I'll get into later in this episode, it failed to make a real dent in all of the death. New numbers from the coroner service show May was the deadliest month yet in the overdose crisis. Last month, 170 people died. That's a 44% jump from April. That's a new record for a single month. Drug overdoses are getting so much worse. In all of June, eight people died from COVID. From illicit drugs, 175. A new all-time monthly record surpassing the previous record, which was the month before. Another 175 people have died from overdoses in July alone. The vast majority of them connected to fentanyl. The overdose numbers came out and it was like the worst month ever. And we're like, this is a a travesty. We need to do something right away. Um, So that's when we called together that meeting. Now, I remember, I think... You both were there, or you were Eris, and it was like on Zoom or something, and we were talking about doing this and talking about a name, making a group that wasn't any of the existing groups, like not BC, UConn, or Vandu, or whatever. And it was like, what do we call it? And people were suggesting safe supply this or safe supply that. And then the conversation went to like, well, the government has now made that word really hard to unpack. And Anne was like, liberation front, you know? like that old 70s militancy, and that's the name that stuck. The Drug User Liberation Front. Those words felt uncooptable to us, and a plan started to emerge. Buy drugs, test them, and hand them out for free. In public, invite the media and let the whole world see what we're doing. Let everyone know what a safe supply really looks like. The first action that we threw together is really fast, um, and I was I was pretty confident that I could get it from from the dark web, and... Uh, the people who are trying to source in person ended up, uh, they all ended up falling through. And the only one that reliably came through was the darknet source. This has long been like an idea talked about in the neighborhood, you know, like giving out drugs. Like Ann Livingston several years ago was like, we should just have a sock full of Dilaudid and hand it out. And uh, like at the side of meetings and conferences. And then, and so I remember that first giveaway was like in June of 2020, you know, they had a little tent on Dunleavy Street and the spectrometer readings and the dope was being given out in the tent, but there wasn't heroin, right? It was like that. Nobody could find that yet, at least not in a, not in a concentration or not like with ingredients that we're happy with. Right. That's right. Yeah. So we did, we did end up finding heroin, but it was, it was cut with, with fentanyl. And so we decided to skip the heroin and just hand out Coke and opium. Instead, we set up a little blue tent near Van Du, 
on the corner of Dunleavy and Hastings. The cops were right across the street. Someone was playing the clash on the boombox. People lined up, laughing and chatting, some not really believing this was happening. And they got to choose a couple of points of coke or some opium. The government is not coming to save us, so we have to save ourselves. That's what we fucking learned. We learned it. We learned it with safe injection sites. They weren't going to set up insight until we set up sites there and there illegally without permission ourselves first. We broke the law to embarrass them into doing it. That was the last overdose crisis. There's another overdose crisis and our demand is safe supply and it's the same fucking thing. They're not going to give it to us, so we better fucking do it ourselves. And that's what today is all about. We gave out free drugs to a tiny percentage of the people on the downtown east side who could have used them. And our quantities were very small. That wasn't going to give people what they needed for the day, but it was provocative. It showed what was possible. And in the words of activist Phoenix McGreevy, it felt like a tiny moment of liberation. The cops didn't arrest anyone that day, and the government basically ignored our action. So we decided to do it again. We started planning more ahead and we're able to, you know, we wouldn't plan an action until we actually had the substances to avoid that sort of um, kind of chaotic rush to find good dope. So w what we do is we crowdfund money from middle class, normal, well-to-do citizens. We take their money, we turn it into Bitcoin, we trade the Bitcoin for Monero, which is an untraceable form of cryptocurrency. We use Linux to go on these dark web markets using Onion servers. So it's like relatively private. You know, you engage with these vendors on these dark, dark web markets. And then your drugs just come in the mail. The first time I did it, I was like, I can't believe, you know, this just worked, right? Uh, and it continues to. Like, I have heroin with me right now. Let's see. So this is like a, this is like a, a cardboard package uh, that came in the mail, right, with postal marks all over it. Like, did Amazon give this to you? No, 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 Canada Post. But look, there it is, right there. I was pointing the microphone at it as if that is useful. Tell us. Cheers. All the work that has brought us here on this day of action, on this, the fourteenth of April. The fifth-year declaration of the overdose crisis. 1,700 people died last year. And these aren't faceless people. April 14th of 2021, That's that was the five-year five year anniversary of the declaration of the overdose crisis in BC. And there's an event, and I remember the lineup was down the alley, you know, between uh, Hastings and Pender off of Dunleavy there. And, um, yeah, oh, yeah. All the way over to Gore, yeah. It went down the whole alley. We're going to keep giving out the free drugs from this tent. If you want the free drugs, they're in this tent. Over here, free cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine. All clean. All tested. And we're not going to stop. The government doesn't make us stop. All power to the people. We kind of screwed up because we were just like, if you use drugs, if you're over the age of 18, we will screen you. You can get pre-screened at Vandu, blah, blah, blah. So it was just like everybody that used drugs. Our screening wasn't you had to be an active member of a drug user group in the neighborhood. It was just like, do you do, use drugs? Are you over 18? 
And, uh, you know, there were advantages to that, i.e., like, people that aren't members of these groups could have access to a safe supply at that time for that one, you know, dose. But I'm also just, like, the, the amount of people that wanted the dope that didn't get it because we didn't, you know, give people, like, oh. tickets or count yeah, it yeah. out, you know. People lined up and then waited for a while, and some people were hollering at me about it, you know, like, at everybody. I just remember because we had to, we were doing a march afterwards and Jeremy was just like, start the march, these people are going to kill me. And I was just like, oh, we fucked up. What, what was that like? What was happening? Um, well, you know, we, we kind of like ran out of all the dope. We were supposed to have people kind of running up and down the line, like letting people know that like what's what's happening. And, um, you know, some, some people kind of got tired. It was a long day and like the, the message didn't get all the way down the line. Hey, can everyone start marching and take the intersection? The truck might pull out. Do we have enough critical mass? I'm like, we're out. Like, I've been telling them to, like, run down the line, like, as we go. Like, and they're like, someone's going to beat the shit out of you. Like, you got to get out of here right now. And people are like, where is that guy? I'm like, Eris, we got to go now. <laughs> we got to go. Drugs. There are no more drugs in the tent. They've all been distributed. Let's go. Safe drugs. Vancouver art punk band Crack Cloud played off the back of a flatbed. A big crowd followed as they rolled down Hastings, heavy riffs echoing off the old SROs. Despite running out of dope, Dolph's second giveaway was a big success. And it had an almost joyful feel to it, with rock bands and a barbecue... Nothing about the giveaway felt medical or bureaucratic. Soon, Dolph had plans to do a third giveaway, but this time it would be even more provocative. It would really give people something to talk about. The three big events we did over the summer were designed to have a lot of media pull and a lot of attention drawn to them. That's why we're doing the block parties and stuff. And we're trying to figure out where we want to do it. And the idea was floated in front of the cop shop and we're like, oh, well, that seems like kind of stupid. Like, that seems like we're just asking to like get our, just get beat. Um, but, you know, it, it, then it then it just like became this this thing where we're like, it's 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 not really about protecting us. It's about making a statement and really getting this kind of conversation happening. And it was one of the most strategic things that I think we did. And then we were like, well, it'd be nice if we had somebody who has a little bit more kind of protection to be able to give this stuff out. It just so happened that we knew someone who fit the bill. City Councilor Gene Swanson. I've known Gene for a few years. Long before she became a city councilor, she was a community organizer, a dogged radical force for social change. And Gene just recently had like donated some, some money, like $1,000 to the Drug User Liberation Front. And we we're like, hey, Gene, it seems like, you know, you're a real ally here. Um, we have a crazy idea. Uh, what do you say you come and give out the dope with us? And she's like, yeah, I'm like, it's going to get a bit crazier. We're going to do it right in front of the police station in the downtown east side. And she's like, yeah, that sounds great. Thanks so much to Dolph and Van Du for organizing this. It's so, so, so bad that you had to organize it. Um. I want to talk to you about something you did this week because you're taking some heat over it. You handed out illegal drugs with an organization or illicit drugs with an organization called the Drug Users Liberation Front. Um, what exactly did you do? So uh, Dolph, the Drug Users Liberation Front, and Van Du, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, had an action. They asked me to come and hand out safe drugs that they had tested. 
We need government to act like the people who die from poison drugs are just as important as the people who die from COVID. Amen, amen. Because they are. Yeah. And that means we need safe supply now for everyone who wants it. Is that really what you should be doing as an elected person for the people of the city? That isn't the big question that we should be asking. The big Mm -hmm. question we should be asking is, should six, almost six people a day be dying from a preventable cause? We need a safe supply and we need it now. And we can't keep waiting and waiting and waiting for half measures. And Harris, you were dressed up as Willy Wonka that day, right? I was high and I was like, wouldn't it be funny if we mailed everyone a giant Willy Wonka ticket inviting them to this event, just like the film Willy Wonka? Well, once you have the golden ticket idea, then you're like, it's a golden ticket giveaway. Then you're like, I'm Willy Wonka, you know. I've heard you say that this is like a symbolic action. It's not meant to give everyone what they need for across the whole neighborhood for the whole day or whatever. It's 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 supposed to be provoking action from government, right? I think drug policy is a really, I mean, aside from its relationship to, you know, systematic racism, it's a game of public opinion. So what you want to do is try and get as much press and as much good press on the issue to try and sway people's understanding of why this policy needs to be changed. I see this the same way as Eris. It's all still mostly about changing people's minds. I really wish I could tell you that we could just do it ourselves, that we could just grow poppies or buy enough drugs to replace the toxic drug supply. But you got to stop and consider the scale. Experts estimate that over 100,000 people regularly use illicit opioids in BC. There's even more people if you count all the weekend warriors, and not to mention the people who use side or smoke rock. Completely replacing the toxic drug supply for all those people is a massive undertaking. The only institution that's big enough to deliver access to safe drugs for that many people might be the state. So far, Dolph has only been able to give out a couple of points to a few dozen people at a handful of events. But these actions show what's possible. They're pushing the conversation about safe supply into the mainstream, and they're putting pressure on the government to offer that kind of program at scale. I think the proof is in the pudding. We know we've given out over 120 grams of drugs. Nobody's overdosed. To me, it's a problem with the regulation of drugs. And I think what we're illustrating is as long as people know what they're getting and what they're dosing themselves with, they aren't going to die. Uh, here's, here's the thing. I'm like, we're not adding anything to the market. The purpose of Dolph is to take drugs that already exist, that are already there. You know, all the, they're in the country, all the crimes happened. Uh, and to, take them out of the market, test them, label them, and reintroduce them. That there's, We're not adding any additional drugs to the market. We're not manufacturing drugs. We're not producing drugs. We're just taking what exists and labeling it and then giving it back to people without making any money. So but do you need someone behind all of that writing a prescription? Hell no. No prescribers. So, uh, maybe, maybe that's a good thing to explain, actually. Why, what's the problem with prescribers? So I can I can talk to this this pretty well as you know someone who's kind of working uh, in a sort of safe supply evaluation and and talk to to lots of doctors. Um, you know, either doctors don't want to prescribe because they're you know opposed to the whole you know concept of harm reduction, uh, or the ones who do 
are, are so afraid that they're going to be audited by the college because they are being audited regularly um, or they're bullied by their colleagues and, and don't prescribe. And, you know, kind of going a bit deeper than that, like it's safe supply is just something that is not fit for the medical system and relationships that people have with their healthcare providers. Um, you know, if, if you go to your, your doctor as someone who's like an, an alcoholic and you ask for, you know, more and more alcohol, like, you know, your doctor's going to be like, well, maybe we should like think about weaning you off. Um, and, you know, that's that's the same thing that's going to happen with like substances. And that's not people's relationships with substances. A lot of the time, some people are recreational and some people have, you know, chaotic patterns, but coercion doesn't work and neither does um, forced treatment. If I could just chime in here, too, I'm just like, this really makes me mad about modern drug rhetoric, where people are like, drugs aren't a criminal issue, they're a medical issue. They're neither a criminal issue nor a medical issue, they're a social issue, and it's an issue of bad regulation. So anyone out there in Radioland listening to this, stop saying that drugs are a medical issue, you know? Chaotic patterns of substance use, if people are using drugs and it's destroying their lives, I'm like, that's an issue but it doesn't mean everyone who uses drugs has a substance use disorder or a mental disorder or are traumatized. Drugs are fun and, uh, you know, I like doing them. I might have my own problems, but I don't see them as a crutch. I see them to a means of enjoying things, you know. In November, Dolph applied to make what they're doing legal. They sent documents off to the federal government with the support of Vancouver City Council. If granted, Dolph would be able to run a legally sanctioned compassion club. It's been five months and still no word from the federal government. So that's what we dream of creating in BC. But what do we actually have? What options do drug users have right now to avoid the deadly street supply? If you watch the mainstream news or listen to government press conferences, you might have heard that BC already has a safe supply. That's what the government claims. It's just not true. But it has effectively muddied the waters and made life much more challenging for drug user activists. The story starts back in 2020. COVID and the overdose crisis were raging, and the BC NDP quickly rolled out a new program called Risk Mitigation Prescribing. It was a set of directives to physicians. For the first time, they were told they could prescribe medications to drug users as a substitute for the illegal street supply, not part of a treatment program or any kind of pain management, just to keep them out of the illicit market. I consulted on these guidelines, and it felt like they were a little step forward. We even covered the risk mitigation program on Crackdown when it first launched. What I'm doing right now is... is is legal. This is a legal process that I have been accepted to, to do. I don't know. I, I just hope it's going to be a, a different chapter in my life. See, I guess we'll have to give this a try here and see what we got going on. You're hearing Crackdown editorial board member Laura Shaver back in March 2020. Laura was one of the first people I knew who got drugs through this new program. So I, um, I got a hold of my doctor yesterday um, and asked uh, if I could um, get the uh, safe reply, safe reply um, replacement for my heroin use and my um, cocaine use. And, and that's 
um, above and beyond what I already have as my Metadol prescription. And what the doctor say? She says, okay, how much are you using? What, what, what is the, which one would you like? Wow. Well, I'm really glad for you, Laura. I'm really, I'm really happy for you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm actually pretty happy too. I'm excited because this just actually might be a, a, a kind of a different, a, maybe a different exit for me than I had planned. Maybe I'm going to finally get to do non-street narcotics and not have to do street narcotics anymore. Right. Yeah, I hope so. Me too. It would be kind of cool, I think. But Lori didn't stop using street drugs. The government's so-called safe supply program wasn't enough for her. And it hasn't been enough for almost everyone I talked to about it. This week, Crackdown's own Ryan McNeil published a paper about BC's risk mitigation prescribing program in the American Journal of Public Health. So I wanted to have him on the show to tell us what he found. Hey, Ryan, it's been a minute. Um, Welcome back. Can you introduce yourself? Great. Hi, Garth. It's Ryan McNeil. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Medicine at Yale and, uh, I guess, scientific advisor for, uh, for Crackdown. Fucking A. Ryan McNeil recently published a paper about BC's risk mitigation prescribing program in the American Journal of Public Health. In this paper, Ryan set out to find out what drug users actually think of it. We got the study approved and then we we started talking to people in February of uh, 2021. And what we really wanted to do is kind of get a cross section of folks from across the province who had accessed or tried to access prescriptions under the guidelines to really understand, you know, what's happening, how do they feel about this change, and then finally, were they able to access prescriptions and how, and then what impact did they have on their lives? And so we ended up talking um, to 40 people, predominantly in uh, Vancouver, the interior, and uh, from Vancouver Island. The first thing Ryan's participants tell him is that the drug supply became way worse during COVID. The price of meth was skyrocketing. There were more benzodiazepines in the down than ever before. And there was absolutely massive fluctuations in the potency of fentanyl. In the middle of that clusterfuck, many of the participants were eager to try out the government's new program. And so folks, you know, talked about, hey, you know what? It is helpful to me. Right? It does, to some extent, limit my engagement with the drug supply. It does let me kind of establish better patterns around my drug use, especially as we're experiencing this huge shock to the supply. But ultimately, like, we we can't pretend it's the same thing as what I'm used to. Or that it allows or accommodates the types of drug-using experience that I want. And that was mostly because the drugs were not the same ones people used in the street. If you use meth, they might put you on Adderall. If you're wired to fentanyl and benzos, they'd put you on Dilaudid. And that's just not good enough. Most people I know can't even get by on heroin anymore. Not to mention... Lots of people got prescribed way too small a dose to keep them from feeling sick. Ultimately, so many people framed it as, you know what, it's good, but it's not the same. I mean, there's one of our participants who put it one particular way, which is like, 
you know, separately is like the crassest quote I've ever been able to get into an acti- academic paper. And I'm like, <laughs> awesome. But he, he basically put it this way. And it, it's like, it's the terms that everybody described it. So it's just fucking boring. I don't feel the rush. It's like having fucking cereal with no milk. It's just like jerking off with no bust in a nut. You know what I mean? It's not the same. And so what this meant for so many people that we talked to, and really the majority of them, were still supplementing their use by accessing street-based drugs. Yeah, I definitely, you know, I see uh, 33 out of the 40 respondents uh, in your, or the people you interviewed, we're still relying uh, on the street supply, at least in part. And that really reflects what I saw too, is people started off with a lot of hope, um, but then a handful of Dilaudid just isn't up to substituting for, um, you know, really powerful fentanyl or, or benzodope. You know, it just, uh, it just doesn't uh, bridge people across. And certainly one of the things that we saw with the guideline implementation is that close to 95% of people who were able to access a prescription were put on basically daily dispensation. That unfortunate part of really the methadone program poured it over to this and folks being put on, on daily pickup. In other words, Ryan's participants had pretty complicated feelings about the program. And that's how people who actually got prescriptions feel. An even bigger problem with the risk mitigation guidelines is that only a tiny percentage of BC's drug users could actually access the program. Ryan was curious about why, and so he wrote a Freedom of Information Act request to see some of the government's emails. One email in particular jumped out at him. So uncovered in this kind of hundreds of pages of, of documents that we ended up getting back, was this email from uh, Dr. David Unger, who's the deputy registrar of the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in BC. Here's what Dr. Unger's email says. Quote, I write with deep concern. There's been tremendous backlash on the guidelines put out thus far from doctors that manage addiction patients and addiction specialists stating to me that they're shocked that the college has permitted these guidelines to be put up. Doctors feel that they're being put into positions where they're being asked to do, guided to do, things that are dangerous, unquote. In a very concrete way, this is laying out that there is opposition to these guidelines, and it's coming directly from the people vested with the responsibility of caring for folks who use drugs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can confirm this. We, I just, I saw so many examples of doctors who did not want to do this, you know, who just said, either in meetings or to people we were trying to help get on uh, the prescribing, you know, no. The opposition from doctors has been so loud that it's even made its way into government press conferences. Here's Dr. Ramnik Dosange from Doctors of BC speaking at a press conference with Sheila Malcolmson, BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. I don't mind telling you that as a doctor, it's not an easy decision to prescribe a narcotic even if it is regulated. There can be all kinds of ramifications for the patient and for the prescriber. Doctors will look at all extenuating circumstances before deciding on this approach. So to sum it all up, 
BC's so-called safe supply program is not accessible to most drug users, doesn't give those few who can access it the drugs they're actually using on the street, doesn't provide most people a dose necessary to avoid withdrawal symptoms, requires almost everybody to go to the pharmacy every single day, and is being administered by a community of doctors who are very uncomfortable with the whole thing. Hey, how's it going? Can you hear me okay? This is Moira Whiten, a health reporter with the TIE. Moira and I both heard the press conference where the government claimed they'd offered around 12,000 people what they called safe supply. I wasn't so sure, and neither was Moira. I emailed and I asked if they could provide the substances that they're counting under that number. And, and then when I pressed a little bit more, they actually gave me the breakdown um, and what I found was that, you know, none of the drugs that they were counting under this 12,000 people figure were actually drugs that people would necessarily be seeking on the illicit supply, like in a, in a regular way. Um, you know, if someone were using uh, methamphetamine, they would be prescribed Adderall. And so that would be counted in this 12,000 person figure. So what they're counting in that figure are mostly short-term, under three weeks uh, prescriptions. It's not safe supply, um, as, as you and listeners will know, um, because it's counting alternatives um, to the street supply rather than direct um, untainted replacements. And so Moira says this made her curious. How many people in BC are actually on something? that resembles what we would call a safe supply. How many people are getting the kind of drugs they'd previously used on the street and without any expectation of a taper or anything else? There are a number of, of like about four or five pilot projects that are mostly federally funded that are providing safe supply in, in BC. 500 is also an estimate because um, we don't have like a centralized publicly reported number from those federal pilot projects that are operating in addition to the Crosstown Clinic. From the estimate I have, there's about 130 people um, at most. I know it does fluctuate slightly at Crosstown. Um, and then a handful more in Surrey receiving injectable diacetyl morphine as well. Um, and then there is the SAFER initiative in Victoria and a couple of other uh, pilot projects that are very small in scale. 500 people. That's an absolutely tiny number. I don't even know if all 500 of those people are actually getting the dose that they need. This just isn't what a serious emergency response looks like. This isn't what it looks like when they care whether we live or die. Maybe the government hopes this is all just going to go away, that there just won't be any of us left. But I wouldn't count on that. Experts say the number of people regularly using illicit opioids keeps going up. And as the old drug user adage goes, things can always get worse. And they usually do. Can you imagine if the energy put into COVID vaccination was put into ensuring access to safer supply among folks in BC as more people have died of overdose than of COVID? Right, yeah. What we really heard from folks is, you know, A, in some communities, there, there were just no prescribers 
no willing prescribers, or there were very few. I, I think we see this in, in government announcements all the time where there's this tendency toward wanting to act like, hey, you know, safe supply, we're doing that. You know, wrap a little bow on it, call it done. It's out there in the world, and that's it. And And really, this is the first step and many more are going to be needed to ensure that people actually have access to what they need. Dolph's drug giveaways not only show what's possible, but breaking the law seems to be the only way that we get anywhere. Civil disobedience and twisting the government's arm is how we got access to syringes, crack pipes, and overdose prevention sites. It's the same thing with safe supply. But the state is crafty. They've stolen our word watered it down, and created a high-barrier program that only a few can access. And then, right-wing columnists and conservative politicians and other governments point at BC and they say, look, they tried safe supply and it doesn't work, even though the truth is we haven't really tried safe supply here at all. So I'm saying to governments, stop patting yourselves on the back for doing fuck all. Stop calling whatever watered-down bullshit you got safe supply. If you're not going to help, at least take our word out of your mouth. Crackdown is produced on Musqueam, Squamish, and Slaywithith territories. If you like what we do, please consider donating at patreon.com slash crackdownpod. The research covered in this episode is part of a supplement in the American Journal of Public Health. It's called Crisis and Change, Overdose and Health Justice During and After COVID. Our editorial board is Simona Marsh, Shelda Castor, Greg Ferez, Jeff Loudon, Dean Wilson, Laura Shaver, Raya Jean, and rest in peace, Dave Murray, and Sharice Kiwatton. This episode was conceptualized, written, and produced by Sam Fenn, Alex Kim, Alex DeBoer, Lisa Hale, Ryan McNeil, and me, Garth Mons. Thanks also to Alex Betzos. We're sorry for your dad's passing, my friend. Sound design by Alex Kim. Original score was written and performed by James Ash, Sam Fenn, and I. Stay safe and keep six.